0: Good morning, Imago family. This is not exactly how we hoped this morning would go, obviously, we wanted this to be more (laughs) interactive and being together in one space, and we can't do it that way, so it'll be a little different. So this is gonna be more like sitting down with a friend and talking about the Bible, maybe across our kitchen table. Except in this case, one of the friends is a gigantic dork who has all kinds of facts, he can't wait to tell you about it, and he won't shut up. So it'll be a lot more of me talking at you today. Um, But again, there's a lot of beauty in that, I'm mean, just having a chance to sit with Scripture, to wrestle with it, and look at the parts that are beautiful and good, and the parts that are difficult and challenging, and we're going to kind of look at both those things today. So the passage we're going to look at today is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible close by and you want to grab that, or if you want to pull it up on your phone, you know, whatever, so you can kind of have the text in front of you, that will probably help as we go through this, because... Again, it's gonna be a little different. Instead of having one big topic and pulling from lots of places, we're really just gonna sit with this one passage. We're just gonna spend time and just go through verse by verse and kind of look at what it has to say and get some background from it and see what the Spirit brings to mind as we look at these different verses. So one of the reasons that we're doing that, I'm gonna give you some time again to find that in Isaiah 43, one through seven. Um, one of the reasons we're doing that is we're looking at the lectionary this month, um, the month of January. And it's kind of tied to the whole idea of the um, church year. And the way that works is, for um, many, many years, there has been a plan kind of that the church used. And they would call it the lectionary. The actual translation just means like a public worship or a way of order of service, a way to do things. There's a little more poetic translation that I love that's just work of the people. And the idea that this is just how you do things together. So in the earliest church, they just followed the festivals that were in Scripture. So they would um, celebrate the the Passover together. They would do the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Booths. They would do those things together. And then as they continued, they added more festivals. They added more traditions, more rituals. And so around um, 745 or so in France and Germany, church leaders started to actually put those into books and give people actual playbooks and say, here are some things that you can use in your church service. Um, and it became a liturgy. And it grew and expanded and different. And, uh, leaders would add to it and change it and revise it. And part of that is the lectionary. And the lectionary is just a list of scripture, Bible passages that are read on a certain Sunday uh, all throughout the year. So there's a gospel, there's an Old Testament reading, New Testament reading, and a psalm every week. And what's interesting about that, and honestly it's one of the things that, one of the reasons that Amago does the liturgical calendar, is that it connects you with churches all over the world. So this Sunday... There are churches all over the world that are looking at this passage in Isaiah. There are churches all over that are thinking about these same things we're going to be thinking about. And there's a beautiful connection with that. I mean, Imago, we're interdenominational, so we pull from lots of different places. We don't have our own denomination. So it's easy to start to feel like an island sometimes. So it's good to be reminded that we're connected to the people of God all over the world. And lectionary is just one way that we do that. And the church calendar does that same thing. It just gives us seasons throughout the year, Advent and Lent and Epiphany, which we're in right now. Um, even ordinary time, which is one of my favorites, where it just gives us space to um, sit and think. It gives us some structure, some seasons to our life as a church family, just like the natural world gives us seasons to rest and recoup and grow. So we're going to look at that. So again, today we're looking at Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, and I'll be reading from the New Century Version, and this is what it says. Now, this is what the Lord says. He created you, people of Jacob, He formed you, people of Israel. He says, Don't be afraid, because I have saved you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you cross rivers, you will not drown. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, nor will the flames hurt you. This is because I, the Lord, am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt to pay for you, and I gave Cush and Seba to make you mine. Because you are precious to me, because I give you honor and love you, I will give other people in your place. I will give other nations to save your life. Don't be afraid, because I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will tell the north, give my people to me. I will tell the south, don't keep my people in prison. Bring my sons from faraway places. Bring my daughters from faraway places. Bring me all the people who are mine, whom I made for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So I really wish that we could steal some of the questions from the Godly Play curriculum that our Genesis team is using right now with the kids, because they ask really good questions anytime you read a piece of scripture. They ask things like, what is your favorite part? What is the most important part? Where do you see yourself in this passage? What stands out to you? And then the question that I really love, what part do you think could have or maybe should have been left out? What are the parts that kind of bother you? I'll be honest, with this passage, there are parts that I love, that my heart just responds to, and there are parts that really bother me, that just don't sit right. I don't quite know what to do with them. So that's part of our conversation today. So if this were Blue's Clues, I would just pause and look at you like Steve and act like I could hear you responding to these questions, but we're not going to do that. It wouldn't work really well. But I hope that you'll continue to ask yourself these questions in the coming week. As you look at this passage again, see what stands out to you. So um, a little background for Isaiah. So Isaiah was one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And we often think about the prophets as crabby old men who would come in and yell at a king, tell them that they was messing everything up, and then storm out again. And it's not too far off, actually. But what the prophets were always doing is speaking against a system. Speaking against a system of corruption that was taking advantage of people. Um, something we can relate to today. And that's what Isaiah was doing. So the really fast, short version of the history behind what Isaiah was doing is um, he is speaking to the people of Israel in a time when there was great corruption. Now, a lot of times they feel like Isaiah, many scholars feel like Isaiah should actually be split into three different parts. So the first part of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39. They call it First Isaiah. That was happening during a time when um, Israel was struggling with the world, and King Ahab in Judah was worried about being taken over. And so at that time, Assyria was a major power in the world. They had a lot of force, a lot of strength. And so even though his own people kept telling him not to, the king went to Assyria and said, we need your help, we need some support from you. And so Assyria was happy to do that. They sent soldiers to support them. And then through the course of things, then Judah became a vassal of Assyria. They became part of their property. They had to follow their rules, and they had to worship their gods. And that was what Isaiah was speaking into. He was seeing this happening And that's where he was speaking against it. So the first part of Isaiah is a lot of fire and brimstone and condemnation, calling out the people and saying, what you're doing is wrong, and sharing that harsh message, but true message of what was going on. Now, in 2nd Isaiah, that would be, um, scholars consider chapters 40 through about 55 to be 2nd Isaiah. Now, this was written at a different time, much later. This is after the people have already been taken into exile. They're being held captive in Babylon. They've been prisoners, and it's, he's writing at this point when they've been in that situation for almost 50 years. Many people were born in that situation. They don't know anything else. That's the only life they know is captivity. Many scholars also feel like this wasn't probably the actual Isaiah writing this part. It was probably one of his followers because it was much later, but we don't know for sure. This message, though, is very different because in the second Isaiah, in this section of the book, he is speaking words of comfort reassurance. He's promising the people, things are hard, and I'm going to bring you home. So the tone is very different. So we're going to be looking kind of at the early part of this 2nd Isaiah, the part we're looking at today. It's interesting, though, there's a, a turn in chapter 42, right before the part that we're going to read that we just looked at. Um, there's a dip. It's been all reassurance and comfort um, and reassuring people. And then suddenly he's like, oh, yeah, but remember, you kind of did this to yourself. You were blind to what God was saying to you, and that's what got you in the situation. Passages like that are tough, because it's easy to overgeneralize. And I think what happens so often is we start to look, and every time there's a tragedy, a bad thing, we look for something that someone did wrong that caused that bad thing. And that is just not how it happens. There's plenty of hurt and pain and disaster in the world that is not caused by anything. It's also true, though, that we mess up. We sin, we make mistakes, we hurt people, out of fear, out of jealousy, out of um, just there's so many reasons why. But we all know that we do that. And when we sin and we hurt people, there are consequences. And it's foolish for us to pretend that they're not. And so in this one, when he's calling the people out, it's a good reminder for us too that when we mess up, we need people that can speak into our lives that way too, that can say, you're messing up. You need to change what you're doing. And it's not out of um, just judging us, but it's is usually out of love, out of care for us, out of concern. And that was kind of the tone in here. But again, he goes there and then he switches back in the verses that we're looking at. He's comforting them. So really, we just wanna think about who is the audience? Who is Isaiah talking to? And he's talking to people that are hurting. He's talking to people who have been lost for a really long time, who are suffering, who are facing problems that seem so big that no one person, it seems, can make a difference against them. So into this situation, Isaiah starts to speak. In verse um, 1, in chapter 43, he says, now this is what the Lord says. And a lot of translations say, but this is what the Lord says. He's really setting up a contrast between what's been happening before, which is you made some bad choices that got you here, but we're moving forward. This is something new. This is where I reassure you and remind you of how much I love you. Also, when it says, this is what the Lord says, that's a phrase that we see a lot in the prophets in the Old Testament. They use that specific language to signify that this is not me talking now this is God talking and you'll see that a lot when they're at the beginning of a statement when they really want people to pay attention they want to emphasize that this is not their words it's God's words and so that's what Isaiah uses here he moves on he created you people of Jacob he formed you people of Israel this is one of those places where the words have a great significance the words he uses for created and formed in this section mirror back to Genesis. The verb for created is the same word that God used when he talked about creating the whole entire universe. And that contrast is really beautiful. He created everything in the whole universe, and he also created you, you specific people that he loves. And you, sitting at home right now, probably in your pajamas, hopefully drinking coffee, being warm and toasty, he created you also, the great huge universe, but also individuals. Same word. And then the word for formed is also the word that he uses when he talks about God being a potter and forming the clay shaping it changing it as it grows that's an ongoing process that's happening all the time in that section next he says don't be afraid for i have saved you now we love that phrase don't be afraid in the bible we see it a lot in fact there's a myth that there's 365 times in the bible god says don't be afraid one for every day of the year and that sounds really great and amazing but it's not actually true it's in there a lot just not that many times That exact phrase is in there over a hundred times, about 117 by some people's count in there. But it's enough to remind us that he does love us and that we are not supposed to be afraid. But he's not talking about not being scared. He's not talking about that emotion, I don't think. There's no way you can just turn off your emotions. You can't just say, oh, I'm not gonna feel bad anymore. I'm just gonna stop that emotion. We try that, we numb our emotions all the time. It never works. You see how much that fails. So I think it's just more of a reminder that in these really hard situations, God is not leaving us alone. She's right there with us in the middle of these hard things. That's echoed in that second part, because I have saved you. The word for saved there also could be translated redeemed. And it's the verb form of the um, noun for kinsman redeemer. We've heard about that before. We talked about um, in the story of Ruth. Boaz was her kinsman redeemer. And that's a part of the Jewish culture where the closest living relative had an obligation to you. They cared about you. They would have jobs, that they would, obligations, they would have them to look out for you. So it could be rescuing you from slavery. It could be righting wrongs that had been done against you. It could be avenging things that had happened to you. There are so many components of that. And so this is a form of that. It is a very close connection. It's not a politician making a law from far away. It's not a big corporation just dropping some money in your problem and then moving on to the next thing. This is someone who is going to be staying in your life, who's going to be close with you as you move forward. Um, It's a personal, it's a very loving relationship. And God uses that word for the way that he is redeeming us and moving with us. The next line, I have called you by name and you are mine. Um, We love that language. It's beautiful. And we know how important names are. In the Bible, names have significance. They have important meaning. So David means beloved. Hagar is a tragic meaning of forsaken. God changes names in the Bible to show something significant has happened. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. The names change to show something beautiful and important is happening. We also know in the real world that names matter, sometimes in strange places. For example, did you know that if a cow is called by name, it makes more milk? It's true. There's an actual study. Why they study this, I have no idea. Someone thought it was important. But it was a study conducted by Catherine Douglas and Peter Rallinson in Newcastle University, and they found that if you treat cows affectionately and call them by name, they will produce 68 more gallons of milk every year. There you go. I love when nature reflects some truth about God and it comes out in a weird way like that. We know the difference ourselves. When someone knows our name and calls us by name, we feel seen, we feel known. It just makes a difference. One of my biggest nightmares is when a former student comes up and to talk to me and I'm struggling to come up with their name because their 21-year-old face doesn't look like their eight-year-old face, as in my memory. We never wanna be like, hey, you, how's it going? We wanna be able to recognize them and show them their importance. I had a friend at a church I used to go to that just called everyone brother because he couldn't remember anyone's name. Um, No one was ever fooled by that, but he was trying. We know that that matters. Being called by name is important, and this is something that God does in here. He calls us by name. Um, The writer Anne Lamott describes this really beautifully. And talks about how close God is. She says, I have never said I'm a good Christian. I just know that Jesus adores me and is only as far away as his name. I say, Hi, Lord, and he says, Hello, darling. He loves me so much, he keeps a photo of me in his wallet. (laughs) If I were the only person on earth, he would still have loved me and died for me. That closeness is what we're talking about in this verse. In verse 2, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you cross rivers, you will not drown. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, nor will the flames hurt you. These images of flood and fire are really just talking about the biggest problems that people face in their life. And for the people that were first hearing these words, it would have reminded them of specific things. Flood waters would have reminded them when the Red Sea parted for the, um, God's people to escape from Egypt. But also, at the end of their exile, when they'd wandered through the desert for years and years and they were about to enter the Promised Land, they had to cross the Jordan River Another body of water they had to move through. Like for us, we knew the ending. We're like, you're almost there. You're practically at home. Go, go, go. It's great. What are you worried about? But for the people at the time, they didn't know the ending, and it was a, another scary border they had to cross. They were entering a land full of enemies, people who wanted to take them down. It wasn't a peaceful crossing. Flames also would have reminded them of specific stories. They could have been thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They could have been thinking about their beloved temple in Jerusalem being burned. The people that were older in that time would have remembered that. They would have seen it with their own eyes. But again, flames just stand for those dangers. For us, we have a whole different list of dangers now. We would list viruses. We would list poverty. We would list um, living without a home. Homophobia. Racism. Sexism. Just hate. Violence. So many huge problems. And again, it's the sense that these are problems that are so big, one person can't do anything about it. That's how it feels. God's calling up images of these really big problems. What's tough is we want the promise to be, you will never have these problems. We want it to be that the fire will be so far away from you, you can't even smell the smoke. You will never get wet even. The waters will stay so far away from you. That's what we wish the promise was, but that's not what the promise is. In fact, we get promised the opposite in many places in the Bible. What it says is, they will not destroy you. They will not obliterate you. You will come through on the other side. Um, again, don't like that promise as much. But it's still a promise of God's presence in these really hard things. I think what's hard is, for all of us, we've seen examples where that didn't seem to be true. I think we've all... Um, We've all seen people that have been burned by the fire and they still carry the scars of that. We've all seen people that didn't seem to make it through the flood and come out on the other side. And those stories are in our minds when we read verses like this. And I don't always know what to do with that, to be honest. I think what helps me to not turn my back on these promises is that I also have other stories where things look completely dark and empty There seemed to be no way that anything could change. And God shows up through his people, to be honest, through all of you. They break a cycle of neglect. They move into a space that no one cared about. They bring love and comfort in words in times when things are completely dark. That's also the way that God works. And because of those stories, I can't completely turn my back on these promises, even though I don't always know exactly what to do with them. One little small and, again, really dorky thing is that the verb tense changes in these verses. Before, it was the past. I made you. I created you. I formed you. Now, suddenly, it's in the present. I am your God. The flood will rise. You will not drown. It's focusing on where the people are right now and the future that they're looking at. That was true for the people in Babylon that were hearing these words. It's true for us today. God is right there in the middle of our presence right now. In verse 3, it says, This is because I, the Lord, am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, it's interesting because God called us by name, and now God gives us a whole bunch of their names all in a row. Four, in fact, packed in this one verse. So here's some little God-name trivia for you. So he starts with Yahweh, which is the holy name of God, the name that he used to reveal himself to Moses. And the next says, Your God, very personal and warm and close. The phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is found 30 times in the Bible. And 24 of them are found in the book of Isaiah. It's a phrase that he obviously liked. But it gives, gives us another picture of God, another aspect of him because of the name. And then it ends with your Savior. Now, in that one, again, just kind of ties together all these names. They're all close. They're all personal. She's showing her love for us in the names that she chooses to share with us. It's like the way that echoes the naming part from before. So the next verses are the ones that I'm struggling with. I gave Egypt to pay for you. I gave Kush and Seba to make you mine. Because you are precious to me, and because I give you honor and love you, I will give other people in your place. I will give other nations to save your life. These are hard. When I first read them, I just felt sick inside. Because it feels like, when you first read it, that God is trading one group of people for another. That he's giving up some people that he doesn't care about for special people that he loves more than anyone else. And honestly, these verses have been used that way over the of history to justify a lot of terrible things, especially against people of color because the nations that he speaks about in here are generally located in northern Africa. The thing is, there's always more than one way to look at these verses. And so as I was digging and researching and struggling and just trying to find something that didn't make me want to just chuck them all out, I found that there, even as back as far as the 13th century, there's a rabbi named David Kimmy who wrote about this verse in particular. And even then, he said that the way that these um, countries are described, is actually talking more about a specific situation involving the people being rescued from Babylon, not a generalization that we should apply to the whole world in all times. The way that he explained it, the exile in Babylon ended when the Persian leader, Cyrus the Great, conquered Babylon, and he allowed the Jews to return home. In fact, he supported them. He gave them money and resources so they could go do that. Now, at the same time, Persia was at war with other nations. That included Egypt and Cush and Siva. He was... um, Cyrus was trying to battle on all these fronts, he was distracted, they were pulling away his attention and resources, and so it could be that part of it was just like, oh yeah, just go, go home, I've got other things to worry about. It could be that the way the nations were raging against each other at that time, this big political scene that was going on, was the tools that God used to bring his people out of captivity and bring them home. I don't believe it was because he was throwing Egypt away. I don't believe because he didn't care about those other nations. It definitely doesn't fit with what we see Jesus talk about later on when he loves all people all over the world. And we talk about there is no Jew or Gentile, that all are part of God's family. So I don't know if that explanation works. I don't know if that's the truth in this situation. But it helped me to see there is more than one way to look at these same verses. And that's something we come across all the time if we're going to actually sit with the Bible. There are more than one perspective of how to look at that. And we have to be open to that. And we have to dig around and research and talk to people, learn from other people in our lives. How do they see these verses? What are some other truths that can come from it? In chapter five and six, God continues, don't be afraid, there's that phrase again, because I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will tell the north, give my people to me. I will tell the south, don't keep my people in prison. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from far away places. Now again, he's reassuring us of his presence right away with that do not be afraid. He's not telling us how to feel. just reminding us, she's with us right there in those hard things. I love the way that God paints a sweeping picture of gathering her children from all over the world, all different directions. If you're of a certain age, you might be singing in your head right now, shout to the north and the south. Have a little flashback. And If you weren't, you are now. But the idea of God's people being all over the world, again, they're not just in America. They're not in one location. They're scattered all over. And she's going to bring them all together and home. I love that image, I love um, the beauty of that picture. It's also um, the idea that we belong to God, we're not possessions, we're not servants, we're children, sons and daughters. I love the way she reinforces that in this section as well. As I was thinking about this section though, it reminded me how distance is not just geographical. Right now, sometimes I feel the most distance just from people because we have political differences, we have religious differences, we see the world differently. Sometimes it's words that are said or words that are unsaid that separate us from people, that push us far apart. Those kinds of distances are also something that God can gather us across and bring us back together. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about putting yourself close to someone who's abusive or hurting you, a whole different situation. But we all have people in our lives that we have grown distant from. Things have gotten between us. And especially now, with things being so polarized in our country, it feels like we can't get past those gaps. They feel as big as the Grand Canyon. But this is another promise that God can bring us together across great differences and great distances. I don't know what that would look like for you, but to me that's encouraging. It's a good reminder, and it reminds me that I need to keep trying, trying to make a space where God can work and bring those people together again. At the end, in verse 7, when God kind of pulls things together, They say, bring to me all the people who are mine, whom I made for my glory, whom I formed and made. There's a beautiful symmetry to this verse. In verse one, he talked about making us and forming us. And again, this verse, she brings it back and talks about it again. Connecting those same ideas. And again, that idea of being God's belonging, you are mine, that connection. Just kind of pulls that together. Again, it's that idea that God is constantly making and forming not just the stars and the sky and the vast universe, but constantly making and forming us individually, little people right here in Peoria. So kind of pull all these things together. Um, When I was looking at this passage, one of the things that really struck me was just the idea of the greatness of God and the smallness of us and how God works through all those things. But as I read and studied and listened and paid attention, so many other things came up to me during this time. So I hope for you that will also be something that happens for you this week. Um, Again, this is more of like a pile of ideas. There you go. Lots of things to think about. Um, When we look at passages like this, we just need to sit and pay attention to what the Spirit is doing. What do we notice? What bothers us? What comes to the surface? I hope we will have time to think that and talk to people in your life about these verses. But I also hope that these verses will lead you to act. We don't want to just study the Bible just so we know more facts and trivia and information. We study the Bible because it leads us to make a difference in the world. It pushes us into those hard places that need us and we maybe don't want to go on our own. Again, for each one of us, that will be different. And that's why we have to listen to the Spirit pulling on us. What do we need to do? But it could be reaching out to someone that you haven't talked to for a long time. It could be putting yourself in part of the community where people really need you. It could be um, making an effort in a spot where you had given up. Whatever that action is, These words also encourage us to be brave. We're not alone in the fire and the flood. We're loved, but we're also pushed to go into these places and be loved for other people as well. So I hope all those little bits and pieces can come together for you this week as you think about all those different things.